welcome to the Radio Stars podcast. I'm your host, Ari Epstein. In previous episodes, we looked at how advances in radio astronomy are providing new clues about stars at the ends of their lifetimes. Today, we'll take a step back and go to the very beginnings of radio astronomy. Almost immediately after Heinrich Hertz demonstrated the existence of radio waves in the 1880s, there was speculation that the sun might produce Hertzian, or what we call today radio, waves. So it's not surprising that the first would-be radio astronomers set their sights on detecting signals from the brightest object in the sky, our sun. It was not an easy quest. Those who first looked failed, while the actual beginning of radio astronomy was something of an accident. Here's our producer, Alex Griswold, in conversation with noted radio astronomer and historian Ken Kellerman of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Everyone knew the sun was an active body. It gave out a lot of energy. And uh, this radio was, was a new thing. And it was easy to speculate that uh, some of this energy might be in the form of uh, a radio wave. Do you think it's because the sun was the brightest object in the sky? If it gave off all this light and heat, it also gave off radio waves. Was that the idea? I think so, yes. People jumped on it right away. Uh, just in New Jersey, Thomas Edison himself uh, suggested running a loop of wire around a hill that was known to contain a large uh, iron ore deposit. And his idea was that to connect the ends of the wire to a uh, telephone and to be able to hear the, the radio noise from the sun. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, Sir Oliver Laud in England used a very primitive radio detector to try to observe uh, solar radio waves. And around the same time, and, uh, two German scientists tried the same experiment. And also, it's interesting, in, in, in 1901, Charles Nordham, a uh, Frenchman, thought that radio waves might, might be attenuated by the Earth's atmosphere. So he, he took his equipment up to a 10,000-foot site on, uh, on Mont Blanc and, and tried to detect uh, radio waves from the sun from there. And did any of these people have any kind of success at all? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, as far as we know, Edison actually never, never tried that experiment. Oliver Lodge was working in, uh, well, his receiver really wasn't sensitive enough. And also he was working in downtown Manchester, England. And so uh, there was a lot of electrical noise from, from uh, streetcars and, and so on. Nordman was probably working at too low a frequency to detect the sun. And it's the ionosphere that's opaque to radio waves at that frequency, which is why shortwave radio transmissions work. Radio signals from the earth go up, hit the ionosphere, bounce back uh, thousands of miles away. Similarly, incoming radio waves from the sun or from, from space hit the upper part of the ionosphere and bounce back into space and would never be, uh, never be received on the Earth. After Charles Nordman's attempt in 1901, decades passed before anyone tried to observe the sun and radio frequencies. It took many advances in radio technology before the detection of signals from outer space became possible. Progress accelerated during the 1920s when more sensitive receivers, using vacuum tubes, began to be available to millions of consumers, inaugurating the golden age of radio. And now here's Leon Janney as Richard the Great. <laughs> you know, the way things happen to me, I sometimes wish I'd lived a long time ago instead of now. Mass is ready. Here's the pitch coming in. And Keltner swings on it, hits it out into left field, way back, way back. And Safright makes a beautiful catch just in front of the wall. By accident, Carl Jansky, a young physicist at Bell Labs, the research branch of Bell Telephone Company, became the first radio astronomer. Here's how that happened. In the early 1920s, AT&T tried to take advantage 
of the developments in radio technology and initiated the first transatlantic telephone circuits using shortwave radio. There were no undersea cables and certainly no satellite. So it depended on the shortwave radio. And it was very expensive. I, th I think they charged $10 for, for a three-minute telephone call between the U.S. and Britain. And it wasn't very effective. It was noisy. It was interference. And so they hired Carl Jansky to run a program to try to find the source of interference that, that limited the uh, effectiveness of the uh, transatlantic phone system. Well, tell us a little bit about Carl Jansky. Well, he had graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a degree in physics. You'll find in the literature he's often called an engineer, but not. He was a physicist, but at that time there weren't really any jobs for physicists. He tried to get a job in, um, in a university, but he was hired. So he was hired at Bell Labs essentially to do engineering. And he really wasn't familiar with a lot of the uh, technology, but he had the lab build a, uh, a directional antenna. Uh, it was known as a Bruce array that, that was sensitive to radio signals coming from just, just one direction. And his array was mounted on a, a turntable and was driven by a motor and uh, turned around every, every 20 minutes, made a revolution and scanned the sky. It worked at uh, 21 megahertz, which is 15 meters, which is a common shortwave frequency. You can find it now on any, uh, on any shortwave radio. And he essentially used as part of his circuit, the commercial uh, receiver. I have a shortwave radio here. Let me turn it on. I have it at 20, 20 point. 20.5 is the specific frequency, yes. I hear a lot of things. I don't know if you can hear this. I do. What did he find? I know he was looking for interference, so he found three kinds of interference. First, a, a kind of um, static from thunderstorms, and then he talked about some other kinds of static that were from a longer distance. But then he had a third kind that he didn't discover right away. That, that's right. I mean, his first paper actually had all three. The first, as you said, was the kind of static you hear all the time during a thunderstorm from lightning. Uh, and the second was from distant thunderstorms over the horizon that were propagating. But the third kind he described as a, when a telescope called his antenna was pointed in certain directions, he heard what he, an increase in the background noise. So if you tune between, between stations, all you hear would be the background, what he called a hiss. Same if you have an audio amplifier with no input signal and you turn up the volume, you hear a background hiss. And what he found was in certain, when the antenna was pointed in certain directions, that hiss got louder, but its nature was exactly the same as the noise or hiss generated by electrons in a radio receiver. And he made that connection. It's very important. Why is that important? Because basically, that's what happens in space. The radio noise is generated by electrons under a variety of different mechanisms. And he, he didn't have any background in astronomy. Everybody knows there are stars. But he didn't know he didn't know about galaxies, supernovae, and planetary nebula, or anything like that. He knew about stars, uh, so he called it star noise. It was sort of a detective work in a way, right? Because he had this rotating antenna that was just going around, pointing uh, different directions every twenty minutes, and he recorded the output on a chart recorder. And he could see these little bumps every twenty minutes on his chart recorder that showed that this hiss or this this star noise was getting a little bit louder in certain directions. So initially, as you say, the, the peaks, the increase in noise was coming from when the antenna was pointed in a specific direction, say south. 
Then with time, the days, weeks, months went by, that direction changed. The direction changed, and with the help of a colleague, he understood that the signal was not coming from a terrestrial source, but was coming from space. So that was the first important discovery. Coincidentally, at that time, which was December 1931, every astronomer knows, even people who aren't astronomers, that in December, the sun is in the very southern part of the sky, and happens, coincidentally happens to be in the same direction in the sky as the center of the galaxy. So he naturally assumed he, he was seeing radio noise from the sun. And it was only uh, after some months went by and the direction kept changing that he realized, again, with the help of a, of a colleague who was a PhD student at Princeton in astronomy, he realized that the noise was not coming from the sun, but was coming from the Milky Way galaxy. And how did he know from that that, that it was coming from the Milky Way? As everyone knows, the, um, the sun appears in the same part of the sky at noon every day. The Earth rotates in 24 hours, and, and, and so you see the sun in, in the same place. Except the same time the Earth is rotating, it's revolving around the sun. And so it takes an extra four minutes to rotate around for the sun to appear in the same position each day. Whereas the stars, since they're fixed in space, appear four minutes earlier than the sun. So it was that difference that you know, after a month, that amounts to two hours. And so after a couple of months, he, he could see that the radio noise was not coming from the direction of the sun, but was coming from a source that was fixed with the stars, specifically the uh, center of the galaxy. He finally made a public announcement of this, and it was in the newspaper. Can you tell us a little bit about the excitement this generated at the time? It was a front page article above the fold, as they say, in the uh, May 5th issue of uh, the New York Times. It was broadcast live by NBC nationally over the, the NBC Blue Network. There was a lot of attention expressed, publicly at least, but it didn't have much of an impact initially on astronomy. Astronomers at that time were unfamiliar with uh, radio and electronic techniques. So they knew how to take photographs and so on. And the radio engineers, well, well they didn't care much about, uh, about astronomy. So it was treated more or less as a, as a Scientific curiosity. Did Jansky ever detect radio emissions from the sun? No, but in fact, he, he made a very important statement from his non-detection because he realized that if all the stars in the galaxy were like the sun and radiated so weakly in the radio, that they would not add up enough to explain the radio noise that he was observing. So even though he called it star noise, he realized that it was not from the stars. It was coming from the interstellar, the broader interstellar medium. Even though the Milky Way is billions of stars, that all of those stars together wouldn't add up to enough to appear to be a signal. That's, that, that's correct. And therefore, the radio noise, he understood that the radio noise he was observing was not coming from stars. A very important, very important uh, statement. And, and we now, of course, understand that it's coming from uh, the interstellar medium. In spite of the attention shown by the public and the press, Jansky could not interest any of the large astronomical observatories in follow-up radio research. And although he wanted to continue his observations at Bell Labs, he was never able to. Ken explains why. Basically, he worked for the telephone company, and he had told them what they needed to know, where the interference was coming from. Also, remember, this was um, during Depression times, middle 30s. 
I think the world was preparing for a war. None was coming. Bell Labs was heavily involved in defense work, and, and Jansky spent most of his effort on defense programs. In fact, he received several awards and recognitions. It was classified, so we don't know in detail what he did. Some of it was related to uh, submarine detection. He was also ill. From an early age, he had a kidney disease, very high blood pressure, things which could nowadays are easily treated, but uh, they weren't at that time. And in fact, he uh, died quite prematurely. It's sad that he didn't get a chance to see the impact that his discovery made. I mean, he's he's famous today. Yes, this, the International Astronomical Unit of Intensity of Radio Noise as the Jansky, that has been adopted for essentially all astronomy work, radio, optical, infrared, x-ray. So it's the standard unit of intensity or brightness in astronomy. So he's quite well recognized. And in fact, just prior to his death, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. But that was before radio astronomy was, was fully appreciated and before so many of the discoveries that, that came later. So uh, he was nominated, but he did not receive the prize. For several years, Carl Jansky had the distinction of being the world's only radio astronomer. But his work sparked the interest of a young engineer, Grote Reber. In 1937, Reber used his own funds to build a parabolic radio dish antenna in an empty lot next to his mother's house in Wheaton, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Who finally did follow up on Jansky's discoveries? Well, there were a few, there were a few attempts. Caltech, a professor and his student, brought an antenna out into the Mojave Desert. But it was really Grote Reber who, who took the initiative to observe Jansky's star noise. Tell us a little bit about Grote Reber. Well, I think you could describe him as the ideal scientist. In the 1930s, when he built his first equipment, up, he was working as a radio engineer. But aside from that, for the rest of his life, he worked as, a, as an amateur, driven only by his interest First in radio astronomy, but he had many other interests, volcanoes. He studied the ionosphere. He, he, he was a true scientist. His training was, was as an engineer. And as a youth, he was an uh, avid amateur radio operator. He had contacted over 60 countries with equipment that he had, had built himself. And he, he was looking for something new to do. He, he wrote to Jansky asking for, for a job, but Bell Labs wasn't interested in astronomy. He also wrote to various uh, observatories like Harvard, but they all replied that they were too busy with their own projects. So as he told me once, uh, he decided to do it himself. Uh, coincidentally, I happened to record that, that discussion. I, I, I can play it for you. And in a measure, the astronomers were afraid of it because they didn't know anything about radio. And the radio people weren't interested because it was so faint it didn't even constitute an interference. And so nobody was going to do anything. And so I thought, all right, if nobody's going to do anything, maybe I should do something. So I consulted with myself and decided to build a dish. So that, that was very characteristic of him. He, he was very independent. He knew what he wanted, and he went out and, and got it. Didn't listen to advice from, from anyone. Tell us a little bit about what he built. We rebuilt a... 32-foot dish in a vacant lot next to his family home. And he also built some very sophisticated electronics, or at least sophisticated for that time. This is something that if it went up in a suburban neighborhood today, you'd get a lot of interest. It would attract a lot of interest. Well, it did It did then too, even, even more so. I mean, people now are familiar with uh, home satellite dishes. Of course, that didn't exist in the 1930s. 
They built a, a 32-foot dish, which he did entirely by himself. He took the summer off. He got a little bit of help from a neighbor, you know, for the heavy steel lifting and things like that. He, he tried to contract it out, but it was too expensive. So he decided to do it himself. Uh, this is a 32-foot dish. You know, the things you see in people's backyards are one or two feet. Uh, it was at the time and remained so until the 1950s, the largest parabolic antenna in the world. It was bigger than any of the military uh, radars that were built during the Second World War. He was a good engineer, and he built state-of-the-art equipment that he, he put on the, on the dish. It created quite a stir in the neighborhood. His, his, his mother uh, apparently uh, hung the wash on the, on the dish, and uh, people would stop by to look at it. They thought you know, it had something to do with outer space or communicating with some military activity. So it created a lot of interest, but he kept to himself. Tell us a little bit about how he actually did his work, what his days were like, or his nights in this case. So the dish only moved in elevation, that is, move up and down. You couldn't scan in azimuth. So he scanned the sky by fixing the antenna at a given elevation and letting the Earth rotate 24 hours and scan the piece of the sky. And then he would move the elevation slightly and, and scan a different part of the sky. He didn't have any computer, or, or, or initially he didn't have any recorder, and so every minute he would write down the output of his meter. And he did this every evening for, I don't know, four or five hours, went to bed, and then the next morning got up, went to his daytime job in Chicago designing radios, and then came home, had dinner, and then and repeated the process. And then on weekends, he would analyze his data and, and draw a map of this radio noise from the sky. Besides the fact that he had a day job, why did he do his observations at night? Well, during the day, the radio noise from the galaxy is overwhelmed by, uh, by electrical interference. In his case, lived in a suburban neighborhood in Wheaton, Illinois, and uh, the uh, interference came prim- primarily from, from passing cars. The spark plug, spark plug ignition uh, generate radio noise. I mean, radio astronomers today are still plagued by interference, but now it comes from many sources, uh, broadcast stations, radars, cell phones, so on. Toiling at night while his neighbors were sleeping and their cars were off the road, Reber worked for several months before he was eventually able to span most of the sky that's visible from his latitude. Initially, he wrote down on a piece of paper the signal strength that he read off a meter every minute. And then on weekends, he looked at that data and transcribed signal strength in the time of the day where that corresponded to a direction in the sky, plotted that, and then in that way he made his first map of the galaxy. What did that show? It confirmed Jansky's discovery that the radio noise came primarily from the galaxy, specifically from the central part of the galaxy of of the Milky Way. With hindsight, one can look back now and see evidence in his radio maps for the spiral nature of the Milky Way. He also drew attention to some peaks where the radio noise increased that was away from the center of the galaxy. And we now know, in one case, it was due to a what we now call a radio galaxy, and in another case, to a supernova explosion. But that wasn't understood until, until much later by other people. So he made the first maps of the radio noise from the galaxy. That, that, that's the main thing. And then later, he in fact did discover radio noise from the sun. And although he wasn't the first to detect radio noise from the sun, he was the first to publish it. For a number of years... Like Carl Jansky before him, Reber was the world's only working radio astronomer. Ken explains why it might have taken so long for other astronomers to join in. 
Well, there, those 10 years were essentially in the late 1930s and, and through the Second World War. And so everybody with any technical or electronic skills was involved in defense work. Reaver had a uh, hearing disability or a hearing aid. And so I think he had a deferment from, uh, from military service. But after the war, many laboratories, particularly in the U.S., Britain, and Australia, jumped on this, made use of both their expertise and the surplus radar equipment they had access to and turned their uh, radar system toward the sky, again, to study the sun in more detail, to study the galaxy and, and other sources of celestial radio noise. Who actually made the first observations of radio emissions from the sun? As we later learned, there were many radar operators, both on the Allied side, but certainly also uh, on the Axis side, German radar operators. All, one time or other, found that their radar systems were uh, apparently being jammed by uh, excessive noise. And a number of them, including the Germans and Australians, realized that that noise was coming when their radar systems were pointed in the direction of the sun. That was all classified during the war, the technical operation of the radar systems. Reaver was working as a, as a private citizen. He detected finally in 1943, I think. It was certainly before the end of the war, he detected radio noise from, from the sun, and he published it. So that was the first publication. But we now know that there were many, many occasions where others observed radio noise from the sun. Let's talk a little bit about Stanley Hay. He was trying to find sources of jamming on the German side, and he got in trouble because a bunch of ships slipped by. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, I think that's the, uh, the most spectacular uh, accidental discovery of solar radio emission. Actually, at the time, he had no background in electronics or radio. He went through a six-week crash course <laughs> in radio technology, kind of thing that the military is, is well known for. But um, at the time, as you indicated, there, there were three German ships that were tied up in a French port, and they had been damaged from, from bombing. And the Germans wanted to get those ships back to a German port for, uh, for repair. But the route was through the uh, English Channel, which was guarded by a chain of the radar systems along the south coast of Britain. And on February 12th, 1942, it was bad weather, it was foggy, and the Germans took advantage of sneaking their ships up the English Channel unnoticed until um, after several hours had gone by, either visually because of the fog and apparently undetected by the uh, very sophisticated British radar systems, which uh, appeared to have been jammed. And they thought that it was due to the Germans jamming the system. And Hay was assigned the job of finding out the source of the jamming so they could do something about it. This is very embarrassing. Two of them were major battleships uh, that Britain had been you know, targeting for, for over a year. And the fact that they got through the channel safely back to port was, was a big embarrassment. Apparently it was in all the newspapers, even in the U.S., Hay contacted the, um, the Nautical Almanac Office or, or London Observatory and found out that on, on that day, on February the 12th, the uh, sun was very active. There was a large number of huge sunspots, and he correctly associated the increased radio noise with solar activity. But again, this was during the war, and Hay's discovery was kept secret until, uh, until after the war. You could understand why. If the Germans knew that they just had to wait for sunspots and they could get their ships past the radar, they, that could be a very useful piece of information for war planning. Yeah, I mean, perhaps they already knew this. Some German radar operators had made the association of radio noise from the sun. Whether they associated it with the solar activity or not may or may not be the case. But they certainly knew that the sun was generating radio noise sufficiently strong that it would affect the radar systems. When World War II ended, 
and a lot of this secrecy was dropped. What what happened? People were able to turn their interest toward uh, using these radar systems to study the sun and, and elsewhere in the universe. And over the years, using increasingly sophisticated instruments, radio astronomers discovered uh, radio galaxies, as galaxies which are sources of strong radio emission, quasars, pulsars, radio noise, radio storms from, uh, from the planet Jupiter, cosmic masers, interstellar molecules, the cosmic background radiation, and a lot more. And, and the, these discoveries just, just changed in a very fundamental way our, our understanding of the universe, which until Nansky's work in 1930 through 1933 had, had been restricted to this very narrow optical window. Ken, I can't thank you enough. Well, it's been fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Stars, brought to you by MIT's Haystack Observatory. This is your host, Ari Epstein. Come back soon to find new stories about radio astronomy and what it uncovers about the puzzling life cycles of stars. Contributors to this podcast include Len D. Matthews, Principal Investigator, Alex Griswold, Producer, Ari Epstein, your host and project advisor, along with our other advisors, Nancy Wolf-Coteri and Nancy Wolk. Special thanks to Ken Kellerman. Music by Pond5. This material is based upon work supported in part by the National Science Foundation under grant AST 2107681. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.